0: Welcome to Revolutionary Woman. My name is Tess Silverman. Women around the world are constantly creating ways to make a difference in their communities, and today's guest is no exception. Marinelle M. de Jesus Esquire is a former civil rights lawyer from Washington, D.C., who turned her passion for hiking into a full time endeavor as a social entrepreneur, solutions focused journalist, and speaker. She's the founder of the award-winning media platform Brown Gal Trekker and mountain trekking enterprise Equity Global Treks, both of which aim to elevate the status and roles of women and indigenous communities in the outdoor and travel industries. Marinel is a full-time global mountain nomad and travels to mountain destinations regularly to explore adventure travel initiatives that are community-led and or focused on female leadership in the industry. In 2019, she founded a nonprofit human rights organization, the Porter Voice Collective, which aims to advocate for the human rights of porters in Peru, Nepal, and Tanzania, and workforce equity tourism as a form of sustainable tourism through the use of storytelling and all forms of media. Marinel has written for various outdoor and travel publications, such as The Alpinist Magazine, Outside, Fodor's, Backpacker Magazine, HuffPost, and Adventure Journal. She was a board member of the American Hiking Society and JEDI Committee Chair from 2020 and 10 to 2022, and a brand ambassador for Osprey and AKU Trekking Shoes. Hi, Marinel. Welcome to Revolutionary Women. How are you this evening? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I have a lot of questions to ask you, so let's get started. Okay, so you were born and raised in Manila, Philippines. What was your childhood like in Manila?
1: It was a typical Filipino childhood, I would say, back in the 80s. And, you know, we lived in Manila, which is a big city. So I went to school, uh, grew up in a kind of like the suburbs area of Manila. And uh, so I was there until I was 13 years old. So I spent a lot of my youth and young young years you know younger years there uh, as a kid mm-hmm. and so it was it was great I had a lot of family come visit it's it's a bigger uh, network of family uh, mm-hmm. compared to when we moved to the U.S. so mm-hmm. I had a lot of uh, relatives uh, interaction with families outside Manila and also at our house and And so it was a fun place to be, you know, uh, you know, living a Filipino kind of lifestyle where, you know, you eat Filipino food, (laughs) which now I miss a lot, take Mm. it for granted. And of course, the warmth of the culture and community. uh, It's a bit more of a close-knit community living in Manila and being Filipino.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I grew up in, in, uh, I, I was born in Manila, actually, but I grew up pretty much in New York so but when you know I I have family all over the place but it's true you know when you are when you get together with extended family it's noisy (laughs) but it's a lot of fun and you eat good food and you really get to like experience you know um a lot of um a lot of closeness with with that you know it's really cool so yeah uh, so so then you and your family moved to the U.S. when you were 13 like you said and settled in Seattle What was that that transition like for you?
1: It was very difficult, actually, because I think when you're a teenager, you, you know, you get attached to your friends and Mm -hmm. you've already lived enough years that you form bonds with friends and family. And so we even left our oldest brother behind. So that Mm -hmm. was so strange for me to leave a a brother behind. Mm -hmm. And I have three brothers and he was like the oldest because he was too old to come to the U.S. So to me, as a child, to be honest, it didn't really make sense. I I hear my parents' reasoning is that, oh, it's for a better life. Hmm. America is this and that. It's the American dream. We can do better. We Mm -hmm. can get jobs. It's better for you kids. You're going to be successful. Mm -hmm. So it's this idea of the financial drive behind it to to have a much easier life. But as a teenager, you don't really think about that stuff, right? You're you're more into your relationships. You want your friends. You want to be... You want to belong to something. So when I came to America, I was an outsider. That was my very first time uh, getting the sense of being an outsider and and the other, the other Mm -hmm. thing that happens in the U.S. being an immigrant. Mm -hmm. So... It was harsh in a lot of ways. I think I had a hard time, even even though I was the youngest person to came with my family, because mm-hmm. I think the older you are coming to America, it's harder to adjust. Right. And it's like when you're younger, it's much easier because you're still, you know, young enough to kind of just adapt. Mm-hmm. But even for me, I went through a little bit of depression, you know, losing my friends and family and trying to make a sense of this culture that didn't feel very welcoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had an accent mm-hmm. and then I was, brown i was an immigrant mm-hmm. and and i really that was the very first time i really felt being different mm. i think when you grew up in my Philippines as filipino i didn't have that to me it was completely whole right mm-hmm. but when i came to america there was a lot of uh, things i had to process like being in america is just really my home when people make me feel differently mm. you know th- that i feel like i had to adjust and change who i am to right. be
0: accepted
1: yeah. So to me, it was a big challenge for a very young mind who who doesn't have the tools yet to cope.
0: Right, yeah. So, no, yeah. I, I, can, I can so understand that, because I came here when I was 10, and mm-hmm. while English was my first language, you know, when someone would ask me, say, so... How come you don't have an accent? It was because English yeah. was my first, my first language. You know, I actually did. I was, I was taught by my aunt who was an English teacher, English first before Tagalog. So mm-hmm. it was kind of puzzling for some. Like, wow, she doesn't have an accent. I was like, well, yeah. So what does that mean? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And it, it, it did. Like I did. I did leave some friends behind. Also, um, and it was. You know, it. The one thing that I kept thinking was you know thank goodness I had family here um you know but and then trying to f- to make friends um when you're not in when you're when you feel different already you know so it's like mm-hmm. okay it it was it wasn't it was hard but it wasn't as hard as I um as I'm sure others have have gone through because I guess I I, I kind of past because of I didn't have an accent. You know, I think that that, that yeah. was part of it. Um yeah. but no looking back I'm like, you know, it, it was really strange, you know, that that was the first thing that they would notice. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, so so um so after high school you attended University of Washington and graduated with a BA in social work and American ethnic studies. Then you attended UW UW law school and graduated with a dual degree Juris doctor and master's in social work. Did you want to have a career in law or social work or a combination of the two?
1: Initially, I was supposed to be a doctor. Actually, oh, <laughs> but I, I realized <laughs> I was <pretty> So <laughs> There's a story to the story, and it's it's because my parents wanted me to be a doctor, and I, I realized I don't have the uh, you know the interest in science mm-hmm. that you know you need to. Successful in medicine, and when I was in U- at UW, I was more of an activist. I, I, mm. I got into American studies and really got interested in it, so I shifted from medicine to social sciences and then realized that maybe I can do advocacy work by being a lawyer. Ah. And I, um, yeah, so that's kind of how it evolved. And I also wanted to please my parents. In fact, <laughs> to answer your question, I wanted to be a social worker, but. I was afraid that my parents wouldn't approve of it because there's no money being a social worker. I didn't want them to worry about me because, you know, they came to America for a reason and for them... The minimum that I have to be is a doctor, yes. right? So I have to kind of like meet that <laughs> expectation. So I thought maybe lawyering is pretty much the same as being a doctor. Yeah. So when I told them I'm gonna be a lawyer, they were okay with it. That's so but funny. To yeah. be honest, even though I became a, I I pursued law, I was still interested in social work because my heart is really into trying to create social change. I'm interested in advocacy work and also trying to really um Uh, you know just just be an activist and create changes in the world I wasn't so much interested in you know profits and making money like capitalism and things like that like Mm -hmm. you know I didn't go to lawyer just to make money I wanted to just really create impact Mm -hmm. and so I thought thought it was just a happy marriage with you know social work and law and at the same time get the approval of my parents in terms of what
0: I'm doing. Yeah. No, you well you checked the box which was great, you know. Yeah, it did.
1: That's right. yeah. So it worked out.
0: Yeah. Um, and that's so funny that you said doctor because I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, every Filipino family wants a doctor in their family. Yes. You know, I And know. It, it, it's so funny. I can relate because both my sisters went in the medical field and I was supposed to also. And I'm just like, um no, I tried. And I'm like, that wasn't going to be for me. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, like your parents, you know, you, you, my parents came here. You know, for like every everything else is like for a better life and, you know, and the sacrifices they made was so their children could be professionals and and like, you know, have good jobs and be successful. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so when I said, well, you know, I really want to be a writer, they just looked at me like I had two heads and they were like, what are you going to do with that? I'm like, um so I caved in for a semester <laughs> and I went for, yeah. for pre-med and then I decided, what am I doing? This is not going to be, you know, for me. Um, and mm-hmm. it took me years <laughs> to like finally get to where I am. Um, but I did, I, I actually had to find something similar, or at least something that would pay my bills, you know, make them mm-hmm. happy, right, before yeah. I decided, you know, this is really not what I want to be in. So I, I can so relate. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so, um, so you then moved to DC in 2001 after graduating, and started out as a judicial clerk for the Family Court of DC. So, what was it like working for Family Court?
1: Well, as a judicial clerk, it was. I mean, law is a, a very uh, stressful profession to mm. be with. So, mm-hmm. whichever role you play, I thought it was. You know, being fresh from law school, obviously, you're. It's quite intimidating working for judges because mm-hmm. they're pretty high, pretty pretty high up there right. in terms of position. And so to me, I, I kind of idolized them because they have been in the bench and in the law practice for a long time. So mm-hmm. to actually be selected was very much a privilege and an honor. So I, to me, I was just sort of, you know, trying, you know, I'm trying to prove myself my, my first year out of law school and trying mm-hmm. to impress people just because I know after the judicial court, she gets clerkship, I still have to get a job after that, so it's one of those things where after you get out of law school, you just really do the hard work and and prove yourself, it's just, uh, you know, and then you have a lot of insecurity still, being Mm -hmm. a young lawyer, Mm -hmm. and yeah, Mm -hmm. but it was exciting, you know, it's fresh from law school, trying to find your way in in the career that you chose, Um, and then, you know, it gets easier over time, luckily.
0: Yeah, because from there, you worked as a D.C. prosecutor for 15 years. What, yeah. was that, what, what was that like, and what did you like about it? And, and the second part of the question is, Was there? can you remember a case that made an impact on you as a prosecutor?
1: Yeah, uh, the, the life of a lawyer is, uh, well, as a prosecutor, it's very intense, I would say. I, I think it's probably one of those professions where in the beginning, especially, you have to work a lot of hours because mm. you're trying to learn your job. And mm-hmm. it's a lot of things to learn. Uh, advocacy is really a skill that can be honed over time it doesn't come easily you you know you can you know it's a skill that can get better as long as you put the effort over time so i think for the first few years i really had to work very hard to win my cases you know make the best argument so Mm -hmm. everything i learned in law school i was able to apply because you know that's totally being in court is really one of the things you do as a lawyer is to argue. And mm. I put forth everything that I learned and applied it, which is quite amazing, actually, because I, I actually didn't think about like becoming a litigator because I thought I was more... You know, comparing myself to others, I felt like I was more on the timid side of things and like mm-hmm. I wanted to just do contracts. But somehow I got out of my shell. Mm. In a way, it's one of those things that, that happened over time where I evolved into a much more extroverted type of person. Mm-hmm. So in a way, personally, mm-hmm. it helped me grow as a person because I was able to hone my speaking skills and my ability to argue and things like that but the profession itself definitely i work in the family court and mental health section of the civil litigation division and uh because of the the, the work i do is very much uh touches on humanity because it deals with family law and it deals with social issues mm-hmm. you know talk about um, the people that i served as a prosecutor there were 99 percent african-american families in mm-hmm. washington dc mm-hmm. so race issue is a factor um you know uh economy and the 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 economic level of the people that I serve, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of social issues within the system that I had to deal with as a prosecutor that I thought was always fascinating mm-hmm. coming from a social work background. So I was able to actually use both, uh, you mm-hmm. know, both backgrounds in my practice, the social work, as well as the law combined wow. together. So it's a perfect union of my skills yeah. as to impact. I think, I work a lot with kids, and so I protected kids from abuse and neglect, and my role was to really, uh, you know, protect the children from abuse and things Mm -hmm. like that, and to basically ensure their safety in their homes, following the law, uh, you know, that, that I had to, like, you know, argue in court. So to me, the impact really is to, I think one thing that I learned from the practice is the resilience that Mm -hmm. children are probably the most resilient people I've ever met in my life that, you know, it kind of reminded me of my own resilience as a person. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's very inspiring to see kids who have been in the system for so long in foster care, but some of them really get out of it and become a better, you know, the best version of themselves and make something out of nothing. To me, that's probably the biggest impact is just seeing the humanity of thriving and Trying to survive a horrible uh, start to your life and becoming something much better than you've expected in life. Yeah. to me that, that, that is the kids are like the most inspirational I've ever encountered in my life. Mm. you know some of these were like, some of these kids were physically or sexually abused uh. but despite all that, they make something out of themselves. some of them move on to college and become leaders in their community. Wow. So to me, it's that aspect of my practice that I always remind myself that no matter how difficult things can be, Mm -hmm. that there is such thing as resilience, and we all
0: have it. I love that. Wow. That's got to be amazing to know that, you know, these kids who, like you said, have gone through so much, you know, a lot of them have gone on and survived as well as thrived. So yes, that's really awesome. Okay, Mm -hmm. so... um, While you were still practicing law, you founded Brown Gal Trekker and Equity Global Treks. What is Brown Gal Trekker and Equity Global Treks about? What are they and what prompted you to create them?
1: It happened because I fell in love with the mountains, uh, hiking and camping Hmm. and doing everything outdoorsy. Uh, At the same time I was a lawyer, I discovered outdoors in Washington, D.C. area. Mm -hmm. And so it started out as just a hobby. I was very stressed out with my job, so I wanted an outlet. And Mm -hmm. I decided, why don't I do something completely different? Uh What about like doing something in the outdoors, for example? It's such a 180 for my job. And I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And Uh I did. And from there, it started out as a day hike, and then it evolved into camping and then it became backpacking overnight and then the the next thing i know i'm doing solo trekking in other countries and wow. bringing people over to other countries it became such a passion and then an obsession and then I, and then in, you know after a few years my friends were seeing something that i wasn't even seeing they were making a comment that do you know you got a you got another profession here besides being a lawyer, and I'm like, What are you talking about? Uh-huh. I'm just hiking, that's not a profession. Uh-huh. I said, n- uh-huh. No, seriously, I thought they were just joking and making fun of it, but they said, No, you, I think you have a knack with, with organizing uh tracks. I think mm. that's your thing. You, you like, maybe you should start a checking company. So Bronco Trekker is the media platform. I started out with that first because I, I was interested in writing about my travels and mm-hmm. hiking. And mm-hmm. so I decided, okay, that's easy enough to start a blog, just start a website. Mm-hmm. And then when people started telling me how I have the skill and uh, talent for organizing trips overseas, which I've done uh, over a span of a decade at that point, they mm-hmm. said, I think you should start a trekking company. And that's how Equity Global Treks was born. Wow. So I I was actually organizing a lot of the tracks as a hobby for over 10 years through meetup.com before I formalized it into a company, which is now known as Equity Global Tracks. Wow. So that's how those two things evolved uh, while I was still a lawyer.
0: Huh. Well, okay. So what is... uh, So in 2018, you moved from the U.S. to Cusco, Peru in the Andes. So what drew you to live... In Cusco, uh, and you know to yeah. live in these towns, like in de- in various mm-hmm. mountain towns, and then wind up in Cusco.
1: Well, so I was still uh, when I started the Brambo Tracker website and the Equity Global Tracks company. I was still working as a lawyer. And in 2017, my mom passed away. Mm, so that's when I realized I'm not going to waste any more time. Because uh, I was actually telling myself, I'm going to quit after two years. You know, mm. I'm going to go for this full time with this company. But uh, when my mom passed away in 2017, I decided, this is it. I'm leaving mm. my career. And the reason why is because there was this push for a possibility of becoming a judge. And I wanted to avoid that because I, I know if I decide to say yes to that, that I will never, ever leave the profession. Right, so right. I knew there's a bit, uh, uh, it's a kind of a pivotal moment for me to make a decision. Plus also when my mom passed away, there's something about mortality that just reminds you how precious life is and how short it is and why even wait? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, you know, it's just another couple years of earning some money to make feel mm-hmm. a bit more comfortable. But to be honest, it's like, you know, two years is just too long of a wait. So mm-hmm. I decided I'm just gonna do it now. And yeah. so when I did that, I also realized that if I was to run a mountain trekking company, I want to make it as authentic as possible. I want to be on the ground. I want to be grassroots. I want to understand the treks that I'm marketing, what they're about. Because one thing that I noticed in the industry is that there is a discrepancy on how we see tours. Like Inca Trail, for example, it's very marketable and very popular. Mm-hmm. But people don't know the reality on the ground well, that the fact that there is equity issues faced by the porters, mm-hmm. people carrying their back. And I've seen that many times because I've taken people to Inca Trail a couple of times at that point. And I interviewed porters. Uh, people just want to tell stories and they want to share it with me, the, the indigenous community. And then that's when I knew I had to do something about it. Because to me, it's unacceptable to have an industry where... You know, on one hand, you treat the you treat the clients and the paying customers as as kings and queens, as mm-hmm. like royalty,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and on the other hand, the people carrying your bags are being are, are almost like a cheap labor, mm-hmm. and they're not being treated humanely and and fairly. Right. So I knew that narrative coming into the tourism industry even before I started my company, and it really bothered me because I come from a human rights standpoint. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. me, it's like colonialism all over again. And me having a colonized identity as Filipina, I just couldn't accept that. You mm-hmm. know, I'm not going to, you know, run my trips that way. That's right. just, just, to me, to me, it doesn't sit well because I'm Filipina, I understand how it feels to, to, to have someone come over and take over things and extract, you know, uh, your culture and your identity. Mm-hmm. So to me, I had to go back to that and, and really address it when I came into this uh, tourism industry and I chose Cusco for that reason, because Inca Trail is one of the best case studies for this issue, and alongside with Kilimanjaro and Nepal. Mm. So I had three options. I, I You know, I was going to either, you know, I was, it was either Cusco or Nepal or Kilimanjaro, and I ended up just choosing Peru as a start. Mm. So there, that is the draw for me to, to come to Cusco specifically, so I can be close to the perpetual community and really understand their culture, but also the struggles and the right. realities on the ground being a
0: porter. Yeah, I mean, in two thousand nineteen, that's when you founded the Porter Collective. Um yes. And so, did you have prior to that, though? Did you have any idea of how porters were being treated and and Yeah. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah, I, it, so it all started even before I was I started any any of my you know my enterprises like even before Brown Girl Trekker was born. So I think I, I basically knew about it just because I took people to Nepal and Peru and Tanzania yeah, as mm-hmm. a hobby. Mm-hmm. And then and then during that time, when I go trekking with my friends, with the people that I organize, the porters, I just talked to them. I just yeah. wanted to understand the job, what they're about. And visibly, you can tell that their clothing is in poor condition, you mm-hmm. know, that they're they're carrying too much mm-hmm. stuff. And so I was just very curious whether they were being treated fairly. And I think that's what happens when you're curious. Curiosity can open doors to certain things that you didn't know about. Right. And yeah. I think there's a point where it was an, it was like a, a time when I, I just know too much. Mm. But there's no more, you know, it's a turning point. You know, you can't go back. You can't unsee what you saw. Yes. And you can't, un, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it got to a point where I knew too, just too much that there's no way I can just sit there and do nothing about it. Yeah. So I knew about it even before I left my career as a lawyer and ventured into the tourism industry. Wow. Yeah.
0: Okay. Then, then in 2022, you left Peru and have since been traveling and trekking in South America and the Middle East, as well as Mongolia, Kyrgyzstan, mm-hmm. um, Kyrgyzstan Nepal at later in the year. What would you like to accomplish doing these treks through these countries?
1: Well, there is a reason why I'm, I'm moving around a lot now. I, I left Peru because that was my base, but then I'm moving towards Nepal. This mm-hmm. year, I'm going to spend, beginning August, I'm going to spend 10 months in Nepal because we are now launching a campaign to elevate the voices of the Nepali guides and porters. Ah. I finished the film project in Peru. This also has to do with my, my organization, the Porter Voice Collective, which is the heart of what I do, mm-hmm. it's the human rights aspect of it. So in Peru, initially, I I launched a film project that's that's about to be completed this year. Once that's done, we're going to then be launching the uh, Great Himalaya Trail Women Leaders on the Trail campaign, Mm. where we are going to hire the first Nepali female guide to do the 1,700 kilometer Great Himalaya Trail in Nepal, along with myself Uh and a few other female guides and porters. So we're raising money, and we're going to open the campaign to everyone who wants to support female guides in the industry. So the money that you're going to give to this campaign will create jobs for them,
2: oh, literally. Awesome.
1: Because because we want to promote women in the industry, tell the world that they exist. Right. Somehow people still don't think that... Women are working in the tourism and the trucking industry in Nepal. They exist, but they're not being hired because men are getting the jobs. Ah. And that's based on our research on the ground. So we want to elevate their role. Yeah. We want to educate the consumers to tell them if you're gonna to go to Nepal, right. make sure you deliberately ask for female guides because they are there. And they're they're forgotten. You know, yeah. they, people forget that that there are women because we're and and the reason why this is a problem for them not getting jobs is because. Men are getting the jobs because there's a preference for them versus the females because it's a patriarchal society, for one, where operators are led by men. Mm -hmm. So they're going to hire men. And from their view, they think it's cheaper and safer to just have men on the trail, Uh. which to me is unacceptable. We should open those doors to women, too, if they want to be guys, if they want to work in the mountains. And because there's money, there's right. money involved in, in, in tourism, right? Yeah. So why mm-hmm. why just open it up to men when females can also make money for right. their families?
0: Oh, my gosh, yeah. yeah. I know, because I was going to ask you, like, how how are they, I mean, how are they not being highlighted? Yeah, and I didn't even know that they were, like you said, I didn't know that there were women track guides, yeah. you know, and so. so exactly, like, yeah. Because mm-hmm. they're not highlighted, they're, they're, they're again, invisible, just like with Yes. So many industries, you know, it's like yes, you exactly, don't realize right. that, yeah, yeah exactly, we, yeah. because we are so conditioned, right? Like, yeah. a lot of us are so conditioned. It's like, well, yeah. you know, you have to, yeah, it's, right? it's a male job, it's yeah, a, you yeah. know, it's like mm-hmm. you're it's if you're a woman, job. you're not it's that like, strong. And I'm like, what?
2: Exactly.
0: <laughs> what? Wait a second,
2: so
1: we want to put it on the consciousness of folks that, that you know, like when you go to Nepal don't expect to be, to always have a male guide. In fact, ask for a female guide because mm-hmm. when you make a demand
0: like that, you're opening the doors for women to be hired. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I actually went on your site and I saw one of your videos titled I'm All Dear, We Are Nomads, a true story of, a, of an, um, oh, yes. an all-women yeah. migration in, in Altai. That mm-hmm. was an incredible video. I mean, what was the story behind that film and is that campaign still going or not? Well, actually, that campaign is that
1: video actually came out because of a migration trip that I was going to do in 2020. But I, get stra- I got stranded in Mongolia, I said, oh, for 294 okay. days due to the pandemic. The idea came about of uh, filming the women nomads leading the migration because it was a trip that I was hosting for for uh, females from the U.S., like, ah. uh, like clients in the U.S. It's an all-women-led migration. Awesome. But the pandemic happened, so I got stopped. My clients never came, oh, and geez. so I ended up doing that film anyway. But right. the whole story is about female leadership among the Kazakh women nomads, I which that. I also wanted to highlight because yeah. yet yet again, when we talk about nomadic migration, people think it's led by men all the time. Yeah, yep. and. If you watch the film, it tells you that historically women were leaders of the migration. Hmm. We've forgotten it, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think that, yet again, I'm trying to highlight something that's invisible to make it visible to everyone. I love that. Um, I love that. Yeah. So again, you know, it's similar to the Nepal uh, project. It's all about women. Trying to tell the world that we're here, we mm-hmm. are leaders, mm-hmm. and you should celebrate women for yeah. what they are, which, which are, you know, they're leaders, like just like men in, yeah. in any field, right? Right. So that's how it came about. The campaign is not, well, we did have a campaign where we actually started the Pinspekte English and Nomadic Culture Camp for yes. so Women-Led Campaign, which is the 30 Days. It came from that film, actually. Oh. It was inspired by that film. So if you go to my website, I now we now offer the 30-day cultural immersion with the Eagle Hunters, where you mm-hmm. teach English to the kids and live with the nomads for 30 days. Yeah, I saw and that. And it's a it's a completely community-led initiative that won the tourism competition in 2021 hosted by United Nations, wow. World Tourism Organization, I.T.V. Berlin, and all these other major organizations in tourism.
0: That's amazing. So that's
1: the birth, that's that's what came out of it was a 30-day initiative, uh, which elevates women as well, because yeah. it's founded by women. Right. Yeah. Mys- myself and Bakit Gul Atai who's part of the eagle hunting community.
0: Wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, I saw that nomadic cam- um, English uh, camp, and then I thought that was incredible. Oh, wow. Um, okay, Marinel, so as a woman traveling by yourself, do you ever feel unsafe going going on these treks to these countries?
1: I, you know, trekwise, wise not so much. I would say. I think. I think as a woman, um, you're faced with the same danger as anybody, mm. right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, recently I had a fall off a mountain situation oh, where I had my knee. You know, that that can happen to anyone, right? Uh-huh. So I think. I think in terms of the trail itself and the experience I have with the mountains. That's why I love the mountains. I don't think it discriminates, you know. Mm-hmm, like like mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter if you're a man or a woman. It's a matter of your skill yeah. and your ability to climb, right? right? But I have to say this though, when it comes to traveling, it's the it's the people that I meet on, on, in communities sometimes that, are, that make me feel unsafe. When I did the film on the Porter issue, mm-hmm. I was confronted by a, a group of men who didn't approve of my investigation of the industry, of wow. what's going on the, on the InfoTrail, and oh. I, I received threats. I, I received uh, threats to my safety with my production team.
0: Oh my gosh. So, and,
1: and a lot of it had to do with me being a woman because I went against a group of men who didn't approve of me investigating wow. the Porter issues. So to me there was a lot of sexism. There's a lot of sexism all over the world. Mm-hmm. I, I hate to say that, but mm-hmm. I think I think it's not the track that's a problem or the trail itself. It's right. more as a woman, it's when it when I get into some sort of a community and, and it's it's with people. Mm-hmm. When I go to cities and towns and depend you know, in, in any country, there yeah. is always this level of sexism that you're gonna run into. It's right. just a different, different severity right sometimes it's microaggressions sometimes, right. sometimes it could be sexist where they'll tell you exactly what they feel about it you know and yeah. they say you're not you don't you're not welcome here because you're a woman so wow. um so yeah but but as far as mountains go i think it's probably the same as i ever feel as a woman <laughs> because mountains yeah. neutral they neutralize all these like social issues that we normally face as humans i think i think there's a way where, Somehow, mountains do does like that. You know, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like it doesn't really matter whether you're male or a female. You know, yeah. when you're tracking, that you know, it's it's all about how how good you are in terms of
0: your ability. Yeah, yeah. no, for sure. <laughs> yeah, they don't discriminate for sure.
1: So, um, no.
0: so as again, as as a woman, and also, you know, traveling to these places, have you had an instance where you know maybe. I should have um, gone somewhere else or, you know, have you had second thoughts about where you've been? Um, You know, I,
1: I would, I guess I would say no, Mm. I've never really had that feeling luckily. I mean, of course, in Peru, when I had the threat, Mm -hmm. that really made me, that's probably the most I've ever felt, sort of like a little bit of regret, like, Mm -hmm. oh, I shouldn't be here. And I think that's an extreme example, obviously, right? No mm-hmm. one would really feel comfortable if someone's threatening your safety, right? right? So yeah. other than that, to be honest, every place I've been, there's always some sort of level of sexism, I have to say, no mm-hmm. matter where I go. Mm-hmm. But but at the end of the day, it it's really what you make out of it, yeah.
2: right?
1: It, yeah. it could be, it's always a combination of good and bad anyway, and that's right. life. It right. that doesn't really matter whether you're traveling or you live a regular life. Yeah. It's going to be good and bad. And I think as a traveler, I've learned to find the balance, and I never really try to cross out a place just because I had a bad experience. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. luckily, when I have a bad experience, there's always something that comes good that comes out of it. Like, I can give you an example of Mongolia where I got stranded for 294 days. When in the beginning I was like thinking, "Oh my God, what am I doing here? I should have not come here." Uh But then two hundred, so that was my initial reaction to the pandemic. For you know, coming to Mongolia and closing the borders and being stranded and not getting out of the country. I don't know how long I'll be there by myself in the middle of nowhere. Two hundred ninety-four days later, I found a charter flight. I was able to get out. I was heading back to the U.S. and uh-huh. I finally got out of Mongolia. The last day I was in Mongolia, I cried uh-huh. so hard because I didn't want to leave. Wow. So, so see, so that's a, a very amazing example of. In the beginning, I almost regretted it, but in the end, I fell in love with with that country, and I felt it felt like home that I cried. Wow. <laughs> so. So to me, to me, I think what it all comes down to is i, I do believe that anywhere we go, there's a good and bad, right yep. and yeah, if we're lucky, by the end of it, we'll look at it and say, "Wow, that was just once in a lifetime experience. Uh-huh. I wish i I wish I could go back, and that's right. how I feel about like Mongolia now, but initially i I was so scared, and mm. I really thought I was I was totally regretting coming because I got stranded, wow. but it flipped, so
0: yeah. well, yeah, I mean. Definitely, like you know, it was an experience that blossomed into like a a life, a a once in a lifetime experience that you now credit as like you know that that probably pivoted you towards like making this as a as a your journey for life, right? This is basically your life journey. So yeah, I I feel like I you know
1: I lost control completely when Mm -hmm. I got stuck. Mm -hmm. and i was so scared of losing the control but it turns out the story was beautiful beautifully written Mm -hmm. by faith destiny and sometimes when you let go of control it's even better yeah and that's something i really learned like it doesn't always we don't always have to be the one in control of our story right sometimes it just comes right and you just have to be open to it and i opened up myself to it you know in the beginning i was resisting Mm -hmm. because i was scared but Mm -hmm. then when i said you know what i'm gonna go with this Mm to see where this goes and then all of a sudden, wow, this is even better than I thought.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So who would you credit for where you are now?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think that, you know, I, I, I think I would always, the root of it really is probably my parents, you know, especially my mom. Mm. Um, I, I didn't have... Uh, I didn't have those kinds the kind of ideal relationship with my mother where it was nurturing or loving and open and and you know uh close but I think my mom was such a survivor mm-hmm. and a strong woman mm-hmm. she did her best to raise her kids and she even though it's not the best parenting that she did with us because it was very difficult with her expectations mm-hmm. I think the fact that uh, she, she really worked hard to get us where we needed to go. Mm-hmm. It was because of her that I've, I've got this fighting spirit in a mm-hmm. way and the grit. Yeah. Because I think she really did everything for her kids. And I, I and she passed away. So, you know, because she passed away. I, you know, when she was alive, you, you just never understood your parents, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like you still have them in your life. But when you lose them, then there's a aha moment and mm-hmm. you realize that you know, no matter how, you know, how much, how many flaws they have as a parent, you see the root of it, that, that right. it came from so her good. And even though she was so imperfect in many ways, she definitely loved us. And I mm. think, I think that's where it's coming from is the fact that she really dedicated her life to her kids and, and, and she'll do anything for them. Yeah. So I think in a way, that's how I came to be with the purpose that I have mm-hmm. is that if I believe in it, if I do love it. Mm-hmm. Then I dedicate my all to it, you know, and I'll do my hardest to get to to, to you know to just be authentic to it and, yeah. and serve the purpose that I
0: have. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's awesome. So going forward, um, what what else are you um, planning on doing? You know, in the future, I mean, you have these other initiatives, but uh, what are your goals for the community you're involved in?
1: Well, I think. For my companies, I'd love to continue marketing, you know, tours that are changing, the, you know, that are sort of uh, created in a different way where it will focus on women leadership. Mm-hmm. Like the trips that I run are led by women, so I want to scale that idea and get more trips on the calendar where it's led by women. You know, mm-hmm. we have women-led trips in Peru, in Chile, in, in Nepal. Uh, You know, and so I want to expand on all these ideas that I have. I want to continue forging women leaders in the industry. I want to continue elevating Indigenous communities by letting them lead initiatives like that was Peggy Camp. Mm. Um, So I want to scale the idea because I want it to be a role model for the industry to follow. Maybe some other people in the industry would want to create community-led tourism the way we did it Mm -hmm. in Mongolia. So, I want to create new narratives, new templates for how we run the industry. And I say this because my ultimate goal is, for the lack of a better word, it's to decolonize it. And when I say decolonize, I want to steer away from the politics of that word. i What I mean by it really is imagine if we start over again with the tourism where, we come to a country and give respect to the local people. Mm -hmm. And we come there with humility and we go there and ask them questions. How do you want to see the tourism industry? What do you think it should look like? Mm -hmm. I feel like the industry really missed the point in terms of trying to have a conversation with the people who live in those places. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. always feel like people are so easy to come with an agenda Mm -hmm. without having a real conversation and respect for the people living in Peru in mm, Nepal. Right. I want to give those voices, I want to center those voices as a new way of creating tourism mm-hmm. where we actually ask them how do you want to design this industry? Because mm. a lot of the design of the industry right now comes from the western standpoint, mm-hmm. it comes from a eurocentric standpoint. Right. But it never had any input from the people who really are the true owners of the tourism. Right. Right. For yeah. outsiders, I can never claim Peru as my, you know, as my destination. It's not even my country. Mm-hmm. So I think if anything, I would love to create new ways of running initiatives in the industry, new ways of operating, a new system where it's decolonized, meaning giving those voices back. and Mm. and the power and the leadership to the people who should who should have them right right? yeah and redefine our roles as outsiders in this industry in a in a more equitable way Mm. because the reality is a lot of the profits and benefits still uh you know come to those who are from the outside
2: Mm
1: -hmm. you know the people who actually live in these countries they hardly really benefit. And yeah. so we need to create balance somehow. We need to shift that balance somehow so that we have a healthy and sustainable industry. Mm-hmm. So that's really what I hope for. And so I do that through designing my trips in that kind of way where I have input from the local people. Mm-hmm. I design my social initiatives like the campaign in Nepal as a way to educate the consumers. Uh, so I'm just hoping that I can scale the idea that I have through the you know the social changes that I want to do the social projects in Nepal and mm-hmm. also scale the trust that I offer in in a way that it is a, a decolonized version of the industry.
0: No, so. well wow, that's amazing, and and um, I wish you so much luck with that. That's really um. Uh,
1: Thank you. It's a lofty goal. No, I mean <laughs> I, I have to be honest. Like, it's a tough it's tough work. It's actually harder than being a lawyer because I feel. <laughs> I feel like you're chipping away, yeah. and 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 I may not even see the end result in my lifetime. Right. But I have to be prepared for that, right? I'm yeah. Chipping away, and someone else will take my place. Right. I but mean, in yeah, my you first have, generations, yeah. Generations.
0: Yeah. You have to plant the seed, and that's what you're doing. You're exactly. planting seeds. Exactly. You know, and you're hoping <laughs> yeah. that someone will say, "Huh, okay, okay what can I do? What can say, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and yeah. I love I love that um, point of view because you know yes I. It, it, you know, someone as someone who travels, you know, I will not lie. I I go on these destinations, and basically, I just go and and I, you know, I definitely go on on the ports, and then that, and then I just don't even think about it. But after yeah. like talking with a few of um, you know writers like yourselves, uh, like yourself and a few of my friends who are in the in the tourism business about sustainable um sustainable tourism, you know, I had to actually like start thinking like wait a minute, yeah you know, what am I giving back you know you know if I'm just like going there and taking what am I contributing how am I contributing yeah. you know and it's it's a great way to look at it because we you know after a while we're not we're not really benefiting no one's benefiting from that so yeah. and it's a great um way to just. In, give back and also hopefully protect that side of the, you know that the, the the people who are who are involved in this right because at the end of the day it's their business you know this is their this is their country this is their place and we're yeah. just there you know like basically okay well all right I'm gonna buy this I'm gonna buy that how are you contributing you know how is that really making an impact and yeah. For me it's exactly. it, it, impact makes a big difference.
1: Yeah, I hope that would be the mindset of the future travelers because you know, it's not enough that you're buying a service. I think it's important for all of us to understand that our experience as travelers are can be affected by how how, you know, how we play as guests in mm-hmm. in a, in a mm-hmm. country that's not ours, you know, because what? I think my pain point the pain point for me really is coming to these like mountain trails where I'm seeing a, a, a form of servitude. Mm-hmm. I don't feel good about that. Mm-hmm. What kind of a traveler would feel good paying thousands of dollars and then you see the porters not even wearing the proper shoes right. or looking like they, they don't have the proper clothes? It's all ripped. Right. They don't have a rain gear and they're sick. Yeah. I don't think anyone would feel good about that no. when you're paying thousands of dollars. Right. But somehow we don't ask the questions that need to be asked as yeah. the tour operator. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I want to emphasize that consumers, you do have a voice. Mm-hmm. We should be using that voice because, hey, after all, we're paying the money, right? Mm-hmm. We should mm-hmm. ask, why is it that I see borders with no proper shoes? Why mm-hmm. is it that they're overcrowded in a tent? We have the right to ask those questions, and by doing so, we're creating a new standard that's, right. that's much more humane. Yeah. You know, Um, so I think, to be honest, I, I think it's human nature to take care of each other. We want people to be treated well, mm-hmm. and it's just something that somehow have been lost, yeah. lost along the way right. for some reason, or because of profits, right? And, and maybe perhaps corruption and greed, right? The yeah. capitalism, yeah. So. We're going back to the roots and and, and the, the way it should have been originally, mm-hmm. where if we're gonna come to a country, let's be fair as yeah. outsiders, create something that's gonna benefit yourself right, but also at the same time benefiting the people that you're gonna that that are gonna do the work. Oh yeah,
0: of course yeah, yeah. I, I I so agree uh, oh my gosh yeah. okay, so if anyone wanted to know more about you and Brown gal Trekker. Um, Equity Global Treks or the Porter Collective, how would they go about it?
1: Well, it's, uh, well, you can go to Brownwell Trepper website, which is www.brownwelltrekker.com. There's also Equity Global Treks is uh, part of Brownwell oh, okay. so You can just go on the website. They're in the same site. And then the Porter Bus Collective is uh, the port port org. We also have Instagram, Brownwell Tracker and the Porter Bus Collective as Instagram sites, and also Facebook uh you can also find us on facebook page uh for the Brand ball tracker and and the Porter Voice collective so okay. yeah.
0: great thank you um so if you had one thing to change that you wish you had done years ago what would it be
1: oh for myself mm-hmm. or for... no for you oh okay you know, actually, if anything, I wish I started sooner with this journey of mm-hmm. leaving my career as a lawyer mm-hmm. and and starting this journey of changing the tourism industry. I, I think I think not that I'm too old to change anything, but I think I think there's a lot of work to be done mm-hmm. in in this purpose that I have that some sometimes I think, oh boy, if I had ten more years uh-huh. extra, uh-huh. I could be doing so much more, right? right so right, it's yeah. like, Uh, But then again, maybe I wouldn't be as wise and, 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 you know, knowledgeable as I am now. Maybe I needed to be at that age to leave my career. Right. So, but, but I guess I just wish that, you know, but I think the reason why I wish that is because I think I lived in fear for a long time before Um, making this decision and before I left my career I think there was at least a good five years of thinking about it Mm. and still and feeling the fear that Mm -hmm. was stressful Mm -hmm. to be like to to know Uh to know in your heart that you want to leave the career and but for five years you sat on it right right yeah so in a way if I look back I would have just told myself then now that I know what I know now, right. I would have said, Maranelle, go for it. It was gonna be okay. Yeah, but so Mar- maybe that's the only thing I would change. <laughs>
0: yeah, but Marinel, had you done that, yeah. you would probably have been a different yeah. person, right? I mean, you've I had to have, it, right? the, yeah, you've had to have the experiences and yeah, and the downtime before it finally, mm-hmm. like you know, it finally clicked yeah, with you,
1: yeah. right? Exactly. The right time, you know. I, and there's a part of me saying I shouldn't even question the timeline, <laughs> it, it, it's meant to be this way, right? It, yeah, there's a purpose, yes, yeah.
0: exactly. But, yeah. You're, you're there at I the just, right time,
1: yeah. So, I'll just, I'll just fish for a long life so I have more time <laughs> to work.
0: Knowing you, you'll live to be a hundred. I was like, at the rate oh, you're yes. going <laughs> with your tracks.
1: Maybe I'll see the end of it somehow, you know, uh, the,
0: the success, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> that would be awesome. Okay, so yeah. my, la- my last question is, if you could go back in time, what would you, what advice would you give your younger self?
1: I would say, I would say to listen to your voice. I think I think there's been a lot of times where I negated it because I'm so afraid. And when I look back, I I know now I know what it's about. That that there is a reason why you have that feeling and intuition. Mm. If it's telling you to to go a certain way or to do something, and there's a passion and purpose and love and joy in it, mm-hmm. then that you should follow that. Mm-hmm. I, I think not that I regret. Again, I don't I don't really want to regret that I listened to my voice like five years later, but. There were other things in my life where I could have listened to my intuition, I didn't. And I always thought, you know, that was just always just, you know, fear talking to me, you mm-hmm. know. But then again, I realized no, there's fear, but there's also truth. Yes. It's either what you're hearing is coming from fear or it's coming from your truth, yeah. who you are and what you're destined to do. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to discern the two. Uh, you know, being a lawyer, Sometimes I think it was dictated by fear and my parents and Mm -hmm. society. Mm -hmm. But then, being a global mountain nomad, Mm. that's my truth. Hmm. I
2: love that. And
1: that's how I came to understand what the voice was about.
0: Ah, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, Marinel, oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I'm so honored that you came on my show. Oh my gosh! Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I know it's late by you, <laughs> but um, I, I really appreciate you saying yes and and you know telling us about your, your telling us about your life and your work. And I am so excited for you for what's going on next. And you know, I I saw a little bit about your po- um, you a, a little bit of um the video that you posted on about on ITB Berlin and it's Mm -hmm. it's really awesome you know the way you talked about allyship and and it's so important so I I wish you so much luck and and kudos to you for all of these initiatives that you're that you're going forward with because it's so needed and you know it's it's definitely time to not Mm -hmm. to consider not just us as consumers but also to consider the people who are being affected by us. You know, so thank you for that.
1: Well, thank you, Tess, for this platform. I think it's great that you have a platform to share
0: uh, Mm -hmm. these
1: ideas and experiences because we we, we can't have enough of them, you know, with, with being able to elevate certain voices. So I appreciate it.
0: Oh, you are so welcome. Okay, well, with that, have a great night and I will talk with you soon. Okay, have a good night. You too. That's our show for today. I've posted more information about Marinelle M. de Jesus on RevWoman.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in every Thursday for another episode of Revolutionary Woman. You can listen to Revolutionary Woman on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Just a little note I've launched a Patreon account to support the show. All proceeds will go to producing and editing the episodes to give my poor husband a break. For being my personal IT and production department, he wrote this. The address is Patreon.com/RevWoman.